This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to Pub Weekly Radio, that's Pub WKLY Radio, on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Carnegie Medal winner Patrick Ness about his new book, More Than This. Then PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Zine Nelson will tell us about her trip to the American Christian Fiction Writers Conference in Indianapolis. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. The big news in fiction is Nicholas Sparks has hit it out of the park. The longest ride sold... 112,430 copies in one week. That is huge. That is huge. That is, say, 10 times more than your typical book will sell in, in its lifetime, your sure. typical novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's just incredible. Uh, BW doesn't have a review of it up yet, but uh, definitely been keeping an eye on the reviews in places like Amazon and Goodreads, right. seeing what the first readers are saying. Um, there seems to be a lot of acclaim for it. And readers are really digging it. Some people saying it's not his best work, but uh, it's definitely up there. And you know, plenty of folks saying, oh, I read it all night. I cried. Um, it's it's a, a deeply moving love story. I did see one person saying he puts all the, the female romance novelist to shame. And I always think it's, it's interesting to see how people uh, interact with books like this, with love stories written by men, that somehow they're right. seen as, as different from romance as a category. Uh, and and I, I found that intriguing. And... Uh, uh, is is Nicholas Sparks considered a romance writer? To, to well, say? no, he's a guy, so he's considered a writer. Ah, right. There you go. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he, they say he, he writes love stories, and these are beautiful, dramatic love stories, but no one ever calls them romances. Right. Somehow, right. for some reason, and they're they're full of drama and and deep feeling, and and this one, uh, it's two parallel stories. One, a ninety one year old man who's dying in a car crash is having visions of his his deceased wife who's telling him that uh, he needs to hang on there and, and reminding him of things that happened in their lives together. And then there's a parallel story between two younger people. I, I love the thematic sirens going by our, <laughs> our New York office as I'm talking about car crashes. I promise there's no actual car crash happening on, on the air at the moment. Well, those, uh, you know, going back to the numbers, they are pretty impressive. And the last one we saw hit it out of the ballpark as it were it was just a few weeks ago with Dan Brown's uh, another book that just jumped on the charts right mm -hmm. away and you had mentioned about this one uh, that there's a already a movie in production based on this yes there is the movie is coming out in 2015 mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty impressive that the Sparks is just such a brand at yeah. this point that as soon as there's an announcement that he's finished a manuscript even uh, there, there are all these movie studios rushing to 
to to bid on it so there's uh at, at least 2015 is when it's currently slated though mm -hmm. you never know with hollywood sure, sure. but that's probably going to be a, a pretty big deal and the other uh, big news in the fiction list, uh, fiction hardcover, is J.D. Robb, also known as Nora Roberts, mm -hmm. uh, is at number two with Thankless in Death. Uh, J.D. Robb is the pseudonym that she uses for uh, writing more thriller-type things. Um, right. Nora Roberts is the romance novelist or the women's fiction novelist, depending on how you say <laughs> you it. You want it right. Um, it, the, the, I just find the gendering of these particular types of books really interesting that you wouldn't want to be Nora in writing a thriller. You have to be JD, which is this more gender ambiguous name. And you know, lots of people know that Nora Roberts is JD Robb. Like that's, that's not really a secret, mm -hmm. but it's still something about that, that branding. Same as the branding of Nicholas Sparks as a man who writes love stories rather than a romance author. And we were also talking, uh, you and I were having a conversation about uh, men who write romance uh, mm -hmm. novels and a feature that you had uh, commissioned uh, the last romance feature where men talked about changing their names to initials so women readers would think that they weren't men. <laughs> or at least you know, so that they, they could sell a little bit better, I think, mm -hmm. um, and and maybe fit in a little bit better. The one who comes to mind is M.L. Buckman, who I had no idea that he was a guy. <laughs> um, he's just there writing these really wonderful military romance novels um, with a lot of interesting military information of them in them. But, um, you yeah, know, there are plenty of female writers like Stephanie Tyler and Lindsay McKenna who are also doing military romance with a lot of verisimilitude and it just turned out this particular author is male. Oh, right. Uh, but that was actually a wonderful feature and I encourage all of our listeners who are interested in romance at all to look it up on, on our site. Uh, we, we just interviewed a bunch of, of different men who write romance about why they do it and uh, what, what it means to them and uh, they just had wonderful things to say about how important love was in their lives so I think that's a thing that transcends gender that love is just important to all of us these these core relationships romantic relationships are very important very central and uh, people of, of all sorts are writing books that celebrate them sure and talking about celebrating relationships uh, on the nonfiction list um, this is the relationship that one has uh, with perhaps a video game and uh, every once in a while uh, what you know, a we, well, well <laughs> <laughs> well, they are pretty dedicated, as can uh, as you can see by the uh, the title of this book, Grand Theft Auto Five Limited Edition Strategy Guide. Now we get these uh, uh, surprises on the list every once in a while, and this is number seven. I mean, it's uh, this is a guide for all those people out there who are uh, uh, just gamers, and especially for Grand Theft Audio. So that's number seven. It's actually it's it's on our trade paperback list as well. I I love that. It's number. 10 in trade paper and number seven in hardcover so you know if, if one edition doesn't suit you you just you just pick up the other so it, it's clearly cranking it out yeah and oh that's amazing because i, I mean it's so much cheaper for the uh for the uh, paper but people really it seems want the hardcover like no i want the real thing <laughs> that's that's very impressive for a strategy guide for a video game yes exactly exactly and at number nine, uh, this is kind of, well, this is definitely coming in on a trend, uh, the anti-wheat, anti-carb trend. This is grain, uh, grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, and Your Brain's Silent Killers by David uh, Perlmutter. 
and uh, he talks about uh, gluten, the substance found in bread and other stock foods. But uh, what he talks here about is that gluten has changed. You know, he talks. There's been a lot of these uh, paleo diets or, or diets going back to a primitive time, and he argues that yes, while wheat has been around for a long time, it's been changed and altered so much that it's no longer good for us. So that's uh, number nine. Mm -hmm. And number eleven, we have a. Uh, looks like a really nice music memoir and this is simple dreams by linda ronstad and what mm. kind of separates this out from many of the music memoirs that okay. i've seen is this isn't a uh, tell-all book by any means and in fact she's talking about her music inspirations and it's about music and and something that you would probably expect from linda ronstad and this is at number 11 on our uh, nonfiction bestseller list. All right. So we're definitely starting to see those big fall books that we've been anticipating yeah. all summer, though I would not have pegged Grand Theft Auto V, the strategy <laughs> guide is one Neither of them. <laughs> and I had no other segue <laughs> other than that. So. No, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Patrick Ness will tell us about writing teen fiction that tackles big topics. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Patrick Ness on the line. He's the author of More Than This, among other novels for teens and young adults. Thank you very much for joining us, Patrick. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about More Than This. More Than This uh, opens with a boy drowning. Uh, in the first three pages, he drowns unambiguously, so there's no question about it, mm -hmm. and he dies. And then on chapter one he wakes up and so the question of the book is where has he woken up and why has he woken up here and what is this place and uh, that's kind of the starting point i don't want to give too much away because right. uh, a lot of the pleasure hopefully depends on the surprise but uh, surprises <laughs> but uh, that's that's the basic beginning let's say so your your previous book which is a monster calls was about a boy dealing with the illness and death of somebody he loves so what led you to write a book where the protagonist himself is dead yeah, well it was more that i wanted to write a book that started with the hero um, waking up in an abandoned world. I'd always wanted to do that because I always thought that was, I thought that would be so fun to do. I mean, I know that sounds like a nightmare to some people, but for me, I, it just sounds quite peaceful, actually. But I, and I just kept thinking about this idea, and I really liked the idea. I thought, well, let's just wait and let's see what grows from it. And it's, to me, it's such a strong metaphor for the kind of loneliness and emotional yearning that teenagers can feel, particularly when something has gone wrong mm -hmm. in their lives. And, and I, I say this a lot, but I'm, I really believe that the blessing and curse of being young is that what you feel takes up the whole world. And so when you feel a good thing, that's great. That's why the young so often feel invincible, because when things are going well, the whole world feels like it's going well. But the flip side is that when something is going bad or badly, um, all the air is sucked out of the room and it feels like there will never be any other feeling than this bad feeling. And so this, that was kind of the starting point for this. It was to, to acknowledge that that bad feeling is a serious and true thing, not to dismiss it, but to just say what you're feeling is real, but there is also more that you can feel at the same time. And if you just look, if you can just get a different point of view. And so that's, it was kind of that. It wasn't quite so preachy as that, but that was, that was kind of the motivating theme. More than this has an unusual cutout hardcover, and a monster calls is dramatically illustrated by Jim Kay. Did you get to work directly on the visual aspects of these books? 
more so on the Monster Calls, although Jim and I didn't meet until he was finished. That was the publisher's idea. I think it's so that um, sort of writer and illustrator don't just wander off into million and one tangents and never get anything done. But um, we did, you know, we went back and forth and, you know, we talked a lot about where the pictures would go and what they would be of. But the great thing about that was that Jim would come up with stuff that I could never have dreamed of in a million years. There's one picture in a Monster Calls that goes on for nine pages. So a lot of it is just me sitting back and going, this is amazing. I'm so lucky to be in this collaboration. And we didn't agree on everything, but that's how it should be. Um, more than this, I'd like I'd like to claim credit for the cover, but honestly, the designer at Candlebook is called um, uh, Matt Roser. Said I have an idea for this cover, and he showed it, and he showed, they showed it to me, and it was just perfect from the start. It, that that was the first cover design, and it was so obviously brilliant that I'd like I'd like to say I had something to do with it, but they just gave it to me, and I said great. <laughs> so. Okay, and um, tell us a little bit about Saron Dowd, who had the original idea for A Monster Calls. Uh, well, Siobhan was a just tremendous writer for teenagers, and she wrote four wonderful, wonderful books, which people should absolutely seek out. And they're, I like them because they take teenagers seriously. Mm-hmm. They're also willing to have fun. They're mischievous books. Uh, but they just they really believe in the complexity of a teenager and that is something that i am completely on board with that's something i try to do in my own books to really stress that teenagers are complicated human beings with contradictions and all kinds of possibilities and this was going to be her fifth book she fully expected to be able to write it but unfortunately she died sooner from her breast cancer than she was expecting or than anyone was expecting Mm -hmm. so there was there was really only a beginning uh, and my editor, we shared an editor for this book, and my editor brought it to me and said, would you consider turning it into a novel? And I was hesitant at first, because I worry that even if you do it for the best of reasons, you can't write a memorial, because then it's a memorial and not a story, and a story is what Siobhan would have done. Right. But her idea was so potent and so good that it immediately started suggesting other ideas of where I could take it. And that's how I know how I feel that an idea is working when it suggests other ideas. And it was just so strong. I thought, well, all right, let's go not tell the story Siobhan would have told, but do the same process Siobhan would have used, which is let the story free and see where it went. And so that's why I finally ended up saying yes. So I feel like you've had all of these sort of strange, distant collaborations with you know, the, the author who wasn't around by the time you finished the book and the, the artist who you didn't meet until the book was done. Uh, have you ever had more direct collaborations of a more conventional sort? The one nice thing about writing is that you don't actually have to collaborate with anybody if you don't want to. I think writers are people who would be congenitally bad at having any kind of boss so mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know I like working on my own and it feels like such a private the process is private and the the allowing a story to surprise you and to make mistakes and to do that without the eyes of anyone else right is, is an important part of the procedure for me so I you know I certainly wouldn't close myself off but um, I've been lucky in my collaborators and uh, I would be I would be picky because I would I wouldn't want anything to harm the story so how has the young adult publishing world changed since your first book came out? Was it five years ago? And how has your writing changed? Has it changed much in five years? I suppose maybe it has. I mean, there's the, the prevalence of, the f- of, the, of lots of Y films um, has been, I suppose, a big deal. But I just, it's been in an in industry that has the sky falling and has had, eternally had the sky falling. You know, YA feels really robust and, you know, I, I just spoke an hour ago to 800 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. 
who were all very excited about books and about reading books and they'd all read a monster calls and and uh, I don't know, I, I like the healthy feeling of it. And in five years, even with the advents of e-reading, you know, I still get teenagers handing me a book to sign and telling me how excited they are and telling me their opinion about the book. So publishing has changed, but YA is nice and strong and robust. And as for, as for my own writing, uh, I hope I'm always changing. I don't know that it has anything to do with the market or with anything to do with... Um, who I write for because I mean I, I've written an adult novel as well in that time which comes out in January but I don't know I hope it's constantly changing I hope it's constantly growing and I, I really try to do different stuff each book for that very reason because I worry about repeating myself and I worry about growing stale and the Chaos Walking trilogy is a trilogy that actually ends at the third book you know I don't I don't there's not going to be a fourth book because mm-hmm. I want to I want to, I don't want to t- just I don't want to tell a tired story I want to always be excited because I fear that if I'm not excited to tell the story why in the world would anybody be excited to read it so it, it has to always be a challenge and uh, before you started writing teen books you published a novel for adults and, and uh, you'll be coming out with another one in January tell us about that it's called The Crane Wife. It's coming out on Penguin, and it's based on a Japanese folktale called The Crane Wife, usually called The Crane Wife. And it's about a, a man, an American expatriate living in London, like certain authors on the program. Uh, but he finds, much as in the folktale, he finds one night in his garden an injured crane with an arrow through its wing. And he saves the crane. He takes the arrow from the crane's wing. The crane flies off. And the next day, a woman enters his life. And it's about what happens after that. And to me, it's about... The folktale is about material greed. And material greed doesn't actually interest me much as a subject because, I don't know, I find it hard to have an emotional hook on that. I don't really care for stories, usually, about gambling or about con men. It just it doesn't resonate with me. So I thought, what would a kind person be greedy for hmm. and i think i think they'd be greedy for what we all are greedy for when we fall in love which is uh kind of proof you know knowledge and the truth uh, uh, a reciprocation and knowing that the person you've fallen in love with is real and is there and loves you back and if that person is at all reticent you know that can lead even the nicest person to make the worst decision so it's it's kind of about that but hopefully funny and hopefully romantic um, and I just, I wasn't supposed to be writing it. I had a contract and I was ready to, for more than this and I was ready to go on more than this and I had all my notes for more than this and this, the crane wife just got in the way and interrupted and said, you need to write me now or, you, or it's now or never. So I, I wrote two books at the same time. I w- I'd work on more than this all morning and I would work on the crane wife all afternoon and I am never ever doing that ever again, ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I imagine not. That sounds like quite a process. Yeah, I was your brain bleeding out your ears. It's, it's, yeah, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. And so far, most of your protagonists have been male and it sounds like that's true of the new book too. Have you ever considered writing a book from a girl's perspective or a woman's? Oh yeah, um, always. And um, it's... Uh, for a, it, the chaos walking was um, specifically because I wanted to. I started with Todd because I wanted the boy in the, my book to be as complicated as the teenage boys that I knew, like my nephews, for example. And I didn't want him to be the stereotype, so that when he met the girl, Viola, who's very, very important and who tells part of parts of books two and three, so they are from her point of view as well. But that so that she could be also just as human as the teenage girls that I know, because that was a real important thing for me. I didn't want them to be the stereotypical thick but brave boy 
and the brainy girl who helps out and does all the computer hacking. You know what I mean? I wanted them to be equally brave and equally foolish and make equal mistakes, uh, but be equally um, smart because those are like the people that I know. And so it's, I'm always, always on the lookout for how can I write the realest teen possible. And so if Connor was, um, Connor was in a monster calls was Siobhan's creation. So I, I took him as the hero more than this. Um, you find something out about Seth and one of the reasons why his life went the way he did. And that's a very personal story to me. And so it felt like I could tell it from the point of view of a boy. Cause it's, you know, a lot of my experiences in there, but absolutely open to the idea. And I, and uh, in fact, some of the things I've been throwing around in my head, definitely, definitely. So we'll see, we'll see what comes. Your Chaos Walking trilogy is about a world where it's impossible to escape information overload. And uh, I admit I did a bit of Googling around and I found a, a really interesting 2008 piece where you told an interviewer, the story felt like something that's got to be really gone for, really shouted out from the rafters. And teenage fiction is where you can do that and still not be shoved into genre. Um, again, that was five years ago. Do you still feel that way about writing for teens? Uh, well, I, I still feel that way about writing for teens. Absolutely, I do. I think you can take such huge chances with teenage reading because teenage readers are so open-minded and they want a good story and they don't care what you label it. Mm-hmm. I think I think genre has changed in the last five, six years and the lines are much blurrier than they used to be and, um, and that's only a good thing. And I've always, whenever I talk to schools, I always say the most important thing to be as a reader and a writer is to not be a snob. And if if a book needs science fiction elements, like the Chaos Walking trilogy does, then by God, I'm going to use them and I'm going to take them and I'm going to be proud that I did. Um, but you know, but I also use Western mm-hmm. genre stuff, and it's also a chase book. And so I think that's how kids read these days, and it's how I like to read, and it's how I like to write. So I don't know. I think I'm. I, I'm looking back i gotta say i always wonder if the if the walls were ever quite as high as everybody treated them to be the the boundaries between genre i i look back i always wonder was there really ever of course you can argue that yes of course there was of course you can argue that sections of bookstores and so on and the snobbery on both sides because there is snobbery on both sides but i you know i I look back and i wonder if where's you know were some of these straw men were some of these was it always really there didn't everybody usually read widely doesn't don't most people to read a variety and so yeah i don't know i don't know that i would say that exactly about the same thing now and, and i think that's only a good thing i think i just again i just try not to be a snob either way i either way for genre or against genre how, how do kids respond when you tell them that do they sort of nod along and go yeah of course we read widely or do they look yes kind of confused? oh they no they absolutely nod along and because you know they of course they read tons of dystopias but they're they're also going to be reading john green mm-hmm. and uh and the the factionalization of things like twilight because i often ask you know i often divide a room and i say who loves twilight and who hates twilight and then i say well you both write and don't let anybody tell you to think differently you know it's, if you hate it then don't let anybody to tell you to love it and if you love it don't let anybody tell you hate it because reading is personal but i don't know the ones i meet read all over the shop and that's really encouraging and i you know that's how i try to read as a grown-up and uh, they yeah it seems to be what, what kids do these days so good on them they're the best people to write for because all you got to do is all all you gotta have to do is respect them and i say that and that's difficult you know that's to treat them as humans and to treat them seriously uh, but if you do that they're willing to trust you and go to far off places if you want to and if the story needs to you know i've heard uh from other uh ya writers or people who've read who've written ya books uh about this uh, uh the idea of respecting your reader 
And in a conversation I've had with many uh, writers uh, who have told me they have an interest in writing young adult literature, uh, most you know, most recently this morning on my uh, commute to the city, how do you, w when you're writing both, either you know for adults or for young adults, is there something that you write differently in a young adult? Do you leave out certain uh, information, or how do you go about getting your mind around each book? Oh, and because I don't think in terms of audience, really, and I don't mean that in a, in a blithe way. I mean, a story is telling me what it needs to be, and if if it's for a YA audience, it's going to have its own language. It's going to have its own vernacular. It's going to have what it needs to say in, in a way that it, that it needs to be said. And so I just really try to listen to what story demands. And, and you can tell when something jars. And so I don't consciously think, I shouldn't write this, I shouldn't write that, or I have to change this. It's more, you can tell when something doesn't work, uh, when something is just wrong. And that, but that's, you, you can tell that in terms of the story, what it needs, rather than I shouldn't write this for teens, or I should write this for adults. And so like when I was writing The Crane Wife, adults, it just the vernacular of it was just different. And I, so I never thought about what it needed and what it didn't need. It just, this is the voice of the book. And when I wrote more than this, it had its own voice, which was different and necessary for the story. So, you know, it's, it's not that I leave out tough stuff, certainly not, but, uh, it, it's all in, it's, I don't know, it's all in what the store, how the story needs to tell it. And I always say that when I write books for teenagers, I'm really writing for the teenage me, what I wanted to read. And when I write books for adults, I'm writing for me now. And that that's kind of the only guiding principle. And I, I, it's instinctive. And that's not an, I don't know, that's not trying to get out of responsibility. Um, but I think if I'm really honestly responding to a story, the story's going to tell me what it needs. You also published a short story collection, and you've written short stories to accompany the Chaos Walking books. Is there more short fiction in your future, or are you staying focused on novels? Oh, I hope so. Uh, I hope so. It's it's such a different and great and fun muscle to flex, you know what I mean? And, and that's why I also write screenplays, and I've been working on a play, and it's I, I always want to be doing different things because i want i don't want to just i don't want to ever take a reader for granted because when i am a reader and i am taken for granted that is i i never get angrier and when i write the bad reviews of books that i've ever written were because i thought the author was taking their reader for granted i thought they were taking the privilege of having a reader um as given when it certainly isn't i think you have to earn it every time so i think the moving through different forms and through different genres and through trying all kinds of different stuff. I think that's how you keep yourself fresh. So absolutely, if I get a, when I get a short story idea, it's, um, I don't know, it's like a little miracle. You're just so happy. And then you just see, try to make it work. Now you've had a peripatetic life, that of the so-called, what we might call the military brat. Uh, you were born near Alexandria, Virginia, where your father was an army drill sergeant, and you moved to Hawaii, a few other states, before studying in Southern California. Did this lifestyle change as a child inform your writing now, or or had any influence on it? Um, it's a it's an impossible question to answer because of course it of course it does you know but whatever whatever would have happened would have uh, had an influence on my life. But I I look at it and I think. What a good position for a writer to be on the fringe and to, you know, always being, I wasn't, as, it wasn't, it was much worse for my brother who went to 12 schools in 13 years. And uh, um, so I didn't have it quite that bad, but I did go to a lot of new places and to be the kid who's new in class and who sits at the edge a bit. That kind of sounds like a writer, you know, I think we're all kind of fringe dwellers and we're observing and reporting. And so it, it certainly didn't hurt. 
Um, but absolutely, I mean, every I rarely ever write directly autobiographically, but of course every book is 100% me, and of course it's the stuff that I think about and worry about. And so, absolutely, what has made me a person is going to be in the books. Absolutely, it is. And yeah, sure. So yes, I would say yes. And uh, I, I also want to salute you as a fellow U.S.-U.K. dual citizen. <laughs> um, you're living in London now. And uh, when did you move there? And what precipitated you getting your second passport? Uh, I moved there in 1999. And I moved there because my partner, now husband, is English. Mm-hmm. And it was as simple as that. It was that if we were going to live there, I wanted to be able to vote. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be able to participate. I wanted to be able to stay uh, on my own choice. Um, so it really it was nothing, nothing political. So I have two. It helps with travel. You can go to the shortest queue when you get to immigration. Yeah, it does help. <laughs> and uh, yes, and uh, so yeah, it's um, it's just handy. And again, it's always good for a writer to be a little slippery. Mm-hmm. To always to always be at a slightly different in, to, to view all boundaries as porous. I think so. That's just I suppose just another extrapolation of that. We've been talking with Patrick Ness. You can find his newest book, More Than This, in stores right now. Patrick, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson tells us what's coming up in Christian fiction for the spring, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson will take us on a tour of the American Christian Fiction Writers Conference. Hi, Marsha. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Hi. Hello. So uh, you were just at this conference in Indianapolis. Tell us a little bit about it. It is the second or third time that I have been there. American Christian Fiction Writers continues to, can I say ACFW for short? It's less of a mouthful. Sure thing. Um, Yeah, they continue to grow. I think they're up to about uh, 2,900 members now. Um, And a good portion of them are published, but I didn't get that exact number. It's somewhere between a like a half the the conference is a way of it 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 accomplishes several things um first of all um it's the opportunity for everybody to get together and and congratulate them the winners of the carol awards mm-hmm. um they give out awards for the best in uh, christian and inspirational fiction um it is also a chance to network it is uh, a terrific opportunity for editors and agents to acquire stuff to acquire authors to acquire manuscripts there are two two and a half full days of uh, appointments that um, writers um, who are seeking to be published or who are seeking to sell their next manuscript um, that's going on and then there's just um, getting together um, getting together and um, talking shop Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that Makes sense. And there were some big changes that people were talking about this year, uh, as I recall. Thomas Nelson was acquired by HarperCollins, and that's led to a bit of a shakeup. Um, right. What One of the things that's happened as a result of that is that marketing has been moved from, uh, from Grand Rapids, or Zondervan Fiction is headquartered to Thomas Nelson in Nashville. So they've streamlined a certain amount of administration and uh, kind of shuffled 
who's who's also doing editing. Um, there was a, a very senior, very well-known editor, Sue Brower, whose position, and she was the executive editor at Zondervan in Grand Rapids, and her position, she told me, um, had been eliminated as a result of some of the, the streamlining and reconfiguration. So um, Sue is well-known, and she was there to talk with the people that she's come to know over the past 25 years. Um, another thing that happened earlier that people were a, a lot buzzing about, it's not news, but they're there together and talking about it, was the, um, uh, how do I want to say, um, B&H says that they're, they're, they reconfigured or, or strategically realigned their fiction line. But what that meant for many of the writers I discovered as I talked with them is they lost contracts going out um, in, in, say, the years 2014 to 2016, um, and the B&H um, fiction editor uh, lost her position. As well, they're still doing a little bit of fiction at B&H, but it's more the kind of stuff that essentially is a movie tie-in. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're looking for stuff that sort of will work across platforms rather than just between the, the covers of a book. Um, that's that's a big shift, and it and it affects writers and editors and agents. The the other thing that everybody was talking about, and and again, this is not news, but it, you're you kind of have to learn to roll with it. And what does that mean? And how do you adapt? Is some um, digital publishing. Um, it, it, digital publishing um, has affected fiction the most because um, the 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 um, the proportion of of uh, ebooks that are sold that are fiction is is significant. So. Um, I learned a whole lot about um, about the kind of shift that's going on, and about writers who are are stepping up and and doing their own um, ebook uh, marketing online, and writers working with agents to do ebooks, um, which is something that is a, is still a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, we've written about it. Um, so I just I was all ears to hear what people were saying in terms of uh, who's doing what and and overall um, the number of the, the number of possibilities the number of slots acquisitions has shrunk some because um, you know you can sell the same number of books if they're ebooks and and print books but ebooks cost cost less so hence less revenues for publishers. Did you come across? many uh, discussions of self-publishing or or perhaps authors there who had been self-published are looking for more traditional publishers? Um, One of the things that really um, caught, you know, caught my uh, eyes and and ears was um, one of the top names, she's very well known in, in, um, she does inspiration, a Christian suspense, and that's uh, Brandilyn Collins. She um, had moved from Zondervan to uh, B&H a few years ago, and with the um, curtailing of the B&H fiction line, she's essentially out of a publisher. And so she said to me, I'm going to do that. Um, and I, she is the kind of person who is in a position to be able to do that. She'll become like a hybrid, essentially, somebody who's in, who has print books and who has e-books as well. And I think we've seen, um, as we look at the market, that, that the hybrids are the kind of people who can, who, um, you know, already have an established reputation. And so it, it's not like they're total newbies to, um, to e-publishing. 
A lot of the fiction um, that people think of when they think of Christian fiction is romance. How are things shifting within the Christian romance field? Well, I have to say, I heard nobody say, guess what? We're adding Amish. (laughs) (laughs) I've certainly, editing the romance reviews over here, I've definitely seen an uptick in Amish romance. You You have, you have. Well, it is, I would say that we are at a peak. Yeah, yeah. Um, And again, it's because people need to be strategic about acquiring. So, um, and again, it's Beverly Lewis, for example, who started this whole Amish craze in 1997 or 1998. Her newest book was just out this month, and it it debuted at number one on PW's uh, trade fiction. Um, But... So there's people like Beverly Lewis and then people like um, Wanda Brunstetter who sold a million books in over over a year's time. So I think her t- lifetime sales are now seven, uh, seven million, that is. Wow. So those are the folks that um, will continue to do well in Amish. But uh, I don't think it's um, an open field for for debut writers, for novice writers. I'm, you know, I heard a lot in terms of you know what's hot, what's not. I heard that historical fiction, historical romance, is you know not as strong as it used to be. Um, whereas in the Christian and inspirational market, um, contemporary used to not be as strong, and that seems to be coming more into its own as as historical um, softens a little bit. So those are the kinds of things I I heard, you know, and then certain historical periods like um, Regency because everybody continues to love Jane Austen. Mm. (laughs) So take us to the floor a little bit. What was that like? And and, uh, what was the, uh, you had mentioned that, you know, despite uh, the news, uh, what was the the mood like and what were some of the big authors highlighted? Well, one of the things they do that you would be really amazed used to observe is they have a um, a come in costume um, dinner on the first night of the conference and so people came dressed as World War II characters I had I had dinner with somebody in an army uniform and somebody who looked you know remarkably like a 1940s um, movie star <laughs> um, and then I sat next to somebody who was wearing she was a woman so it wasn't a loincloth but she was wrapped in this tiger tiger's fur um because i guess because she did prehistoric fiction or something i i didn't quite get that (laughs) (laughs) so is it just any kind of costume or people are trying to stay sort of literary themed? i mean do you do you sit next to people in in ape masks and um zombie makeup or anything like that um no ape masks but um you know, people sometimes bring things that approximate weapons, um, and so they have to be really careful about. Um, and that's, those are usually the characters who 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 work in. Fan- I'm the authors who work in fantasy and sci-fi, so um, th- they for sure usually have the most outlandish garb. But I've never seen somebody with an ape mask. Now that I think about it, <laughs> um, it's it's very um. You know, Mark, to your question, um, most of the people um, who do this writing are women, um, and so there 
tends to be a lot of jokes among the among the top male authors, people like um, uh, James Rubart, for example, um, you know, about how, how overwhelmed they are to be surrounded by women. And, you know, and the jokes are not retrograde or anything like that. Um, but they, they, they often do take note of the... Um, uh, the vast majority of women writers who who are there, um, and it's just it's very. The people are so nice there. I mean, <laughs> um, because they you know they're getting together with their friends whom they only see once a year. The group it has always been very supportive. That's one of the things that I think is really, really striking about this group of writers is they they read each other's books and they're very encouraging. That sounds a lot like the romance conferences I've been to. Actually, you know, mostly women and atmosphere of friendship and mutual right. support and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because this is, you know, mostly mostly romance writers. There's some romantic suspense. There's a, you know, this small, this very tiny but hardcore, <laughs> hardcore of, of uh, sci-fi visionary fantasy. And what are the men, the men you had mentioned? What, what kinds of novels are they writing? Is it uh, the, uh, uh, maybe a historical uh, fiction or? They tend to be the ones, um, I guess it's somewhat, uh, oh, Perhaps stereotypical, but they do tend to be the people who are who write more suspense, um, who do the thrillers. Um, there's a fellow named Richard Mabry who is actually a retired doctor, and so he does medical thrillers. Um, I'm trying to think. James Rubart does thrillers. Um, they tend to do that kind of thing, um, espionage thrillers, for example. And um, what would be just just curious? What would be Christian themed about? an espionage thriller mm. how would Christianity uh, you know kind of uh, manifest itself in some of these novels well um, in general um, Christian fiction has grown a lot in the past 15 years and so you really don't have very kinds of explicitly religious storylines there are there are you know, like where characters have a, like a come to Jesus moment at the end. What is more natural is to see, and and this this can be true of a whole lot of novels, is to see a redemptive arc of of character development. That you know, where where um, bad characters are brought to see the error of their ways, or or um, the the unaware become aware, um, and that's just the way fiction works. Um, part of what characterizes Christian fiction these days is that there are some things that you still can't put in the plot. You can't put premarital sex in the plot, for example. Um, that's, that's off limits. Um, so there are really a set of elements and a set of rules but I, I think it's it's really important for for people who don't read this stuff normally to understand that it's 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 kind of a genre um, and and Christian may sound sort of off-putting um, but it's it's definitely not like um, say going to a catechism class or something like that. 
Yeah, I would say not so much off-putting, but maybe limiting. Uh, oh, okay. There, yes, that's that's fair. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, a much, much better um, uh, uh, way to put it. Thanks. Well, yeah. don't, no, no, no. I mean, I almost seem it's it's for the... Uh, for for the converted, as it were, um, <laughs> is there? Are they? Are, I mean, do do you see much Christian fiction making its way out of Christian readership into uh, general readership? Um, I think there. I see a fair amount of what you might call ABA friendly. <laughs> Um, as opposed to CBA, Christian Booksellers Association. And I think to some extent, and this is partly as a result of of having uh, spent a week in Nashville almost immediately after going to the Indianapolis Conference of the the Fiction Writers, I I think I see um, an increasing willingness to... Um, to think in in terms of this, I mean, this material can be ABA friendly if it is inspirational, mm-hmm. um, and if it is well written. I definitely see a move on the part of some of the Nashville publishers to um, to look for greater audiences, and and this is just simply strategic. Um, the the CBA market retail marketplace is shrinking. The number of bookstores is absolutely declining. So for publishers to continue to sell books, they have to um, write stuff that is appropriate for the the general marketplace. Place, what we know as the ABA marketplace. Marcia, thank you so much for that roundup. Um, it's really good to get a sense of what's going on in your part of the world. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thanks for asking me to, to come on. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your questions on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub. WKLY Radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 